This month, Pontifax recommends Past Access. Bohemican podcast host Pete Coleman promotes his new Past Access YouTube program, The Great War Revisited Part 2. Join Pete as he travels to the great battlefields of World War I and reports on history from his wheelchair. You can find Past Access on audio on the Bohemican audio feed or on YouTube at Past Access Podcast Channel. Pontifex is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 101, Pope Eugene II. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a John, so we can't be like, Dalmatian. No, but Eugene the Second. I'm just hoping that his predecessor, Eugene the First, doesn't come around for this recording. Although I may have just invoked him. Ghosts, spooky. Oh, oh. Well, so you know how sometimes he's spiders. Sometimes he's spiders. Because <laughs> you eat the jumping spider. Anyway. Yep. Sometimes yep, he's spiders. I remember. Yesterday, I just, uh, on the basement door, I heard a plaintive little knock, and I was like, why? And, um, my husband was like, can you just please open the door? Oh, no. And I opened it, and there was a little spider on the handle of the door. Oh, oh worst. I understand, although I would have, yeah, no, I probably would have run back downstairs, called my husband, and said, there's a spider on the door, take care of it before I come upstairs. <laughs> A spider, save me. Don't like him. He ended up putting it outside, like, gently. You know what? We always try to do that. That's why I have my husband take care of it, so that I don't accidentally just kill it with fire. Out of an instinct, you know? I understand. <laughs> you remember? Yeah. You remember when a wolf spider held me hostage for 40 minutes? It was so long. The dogs were like, are you Okay. It was so big, and I wanted to make sure it had a chance to get outside, but Jordan was not home, so we were hostages. And Ridley just wanted to punch it a lot, so I had to put a gate up. So, Eugene. Eugene II, although it is important to note, by the way, that he is often also called Pope Eugenius I, because his name is always written as Eugenius rather than Eugene, but... This is also true of Pope Eugene I, so very strange distinction happening somewhere in confusion with the sources. So we're just going to call him Eugene too, because that's who he is. Pope Eugene was born in Rome as Eugenio Sabellus, which means that he was a member of the aristocratic Savelli family, like Pope Benedict II and Gregory II, and future popes Honorius III and IV. The Liber Pontificalis early editions say that his father's name was Bohemond, but this has been removed in the more recent editions, including the edition that we're currently using. So for some reason, this information at some point was determined to be inaccurate. Which makes sense, because Bohemond seems like a, a Lombard or a, a foreign name, so perhaps initially they thought that he had heritage elsewhere but then the Savelli records proved to be more accurate. Naming stuff all around in this episode. Eugene was, according to the Liber Pontificalis, 
A venerable and distinguished man of great sincerity and humility, instructed in learning, distinguished in speech, fair of form, and generous to those with requests. Rejecting the world, he thought day and night on those things alone which were pleasing to Christ. You know, the usual. But speaking of the Liber Pontificalis, we also need to mention that Eugene's entry is obviously unfinished. Whoever wrote this got messed up in the middle because it takes up less than half a page and ends on half a sentence. So we're going to get pretty much nothing else from it for the entirety of this episode. Someone died halfway through. Someone died. Uh, Something terrible happened. The Lombards came to Rome. Who knows? We hope it was a miracle. <laughs> yeah, miracles. Let's Let's go with that. Anyways. Eugene entered the church, eventually serving as the cardinal priest of Santa Sabina, which is the role that he held when he was elected to succeed Pope Pascal. And this is where things get complicated, because the timeline gets a little wibbly, depending on what source you look at. Some sources claim that Eugene was elected the day after Pascal died, which would have been February 12th of 824, but other accounts claim that he wasn't elected until June 4th. And this is, you know, a little bit important if you remember what we were talking about last time about how Pope Pascal remained unburied until his successor took care of it. February and June, big difference. The reason for this difference is due to yet another conflict over who to elect. At this time, the populist faction of Rome wanted a different cleric called Zinzinius to be the next pope. Zinzinius, Zinzini, Zinzinzeri. Jeru. <laughs> I saw this name and I'm like, could you imagine a Pope Zinzinius? This would be a great episode title, but no. The nobility, who were still trying to pressure the election in their favor, supported Eugene. But this all being said, Eugene was also supported by an influential Frankish abbot and an advisor called Walla which historian Horace K. Mann says indicates that he was not merely just a candidate because of noble or elite sympathies, but if Walla supported him, he obviously must have been viewed as a capable ruler who would implement certain reforms that Walla was very much on board with. And thus, he gets the majority of the votes eventually and becomes Pope either in February or June 824. That's so different every time. Look, it is the most different when you have a body just sitting out that nobody will bury. Nobody wants to bury that stanky man. So we're going to score him from June, as that's more often given as the accurate date. The election of Eugene also pleased the Franks, and Emperor Louis took the opportunity of a newly consecrated pope to send his son Lothair back to Rome in order to confirm the now traditional agreements between the Papal States and the Franks. I didn't mention this last week because we were stuck on Lothair being a vampire, but <laughs> every time you say King Louis, I am picturing the Jungle Book King Louis. Well, we're going to have several King Louis, so hopefully that remains a theme, and we'll just give him a different hat, depending on which <laughs> he gets Louis to have a new hat Every time. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Sometimes it's like Baloo. <laughs> well, Baloo can be like Charles the Fat, you know? That, just, <laughs> <laughs> that seems right. So. 
So he also sends Lothair there to gain a bit of an advantage. As the astronomer puts it, at Campania, Louis decided to send Lothair to Rome, so that in his stead he might lay down and fix with the new pontiff and the Roman people what the need of the situation demanded. With the benevolent assent of this pontiff, Lothair so corrected the state of the Roman people, which had for a long time been corrupted by the perversity of certain prelates, that all who had been seriously desolated by the seizure of their property were magnificently consoled by the return of their goods, which had occurred thanks to his arrival, God granting it. What exactly does that mean? I don't know, tell me. <laughs> I, I will tell you, I will tell you what this means. In their discussion, Lothair and Eugene agreed on a number of things. First of which was that the pro-imperialist nobles who had been exiled under Pope Pascal were to be recalled to Rome and returned any territory that they had been deprived. So this is what they're talking about in that quote. Remember all those people that Pascal sent away because that pro-Frankish primacerius had been murdered and then he'd handled it so poorly? And so he sent away the rest of the pro-Frankish people? This is that. It had made him wildly unpopular. And so now, by calling these exiles back and restoring them to their positions and their lands and their holdings, Eugene is agreeing to an openly pro-Frankish stance. But Eugene was not blind to the fact that by recalling these nobles he may be encouraging the increasing level of interference that they were trying to gain in the authority of the papacy. Interestingly, Lothair also saw the dangers of nobility with too much influence, even if they were pro-Frankish, pro-imperialists. As far as the emperors were concerned, so Emperor Louis and Lothair, only they and the Pope should have a say in the administration of the Papal States. These nobles, if they actually get to be an interfering force, would be problematic for the emperors as well. And so this becomes part of the negotiation, and leads to an agreement called the Constitutio Romanum. The Constitutio has nine articles, and I will quote it from the preservation in Horace K. Mann's The Popes During the Carolingian Empire, because we need to talk about these nine. 1. That all persons who have been received under the protection of the Pope or under ours have the full benefit of this protection, and if anyone shall presume to violate it, let him know that his life is in question. For we make this decree that due obedience be paid in all things to the Pope or to his dukes and judges appointed to administer justice. 2. The pillage of church property, which had up to this often been practiced upon the death of a Pope and sometimes even during his lifetime, was forbidden. 3. Any interference with papal elections on the part of those who had no right to take part in them was prohibited. 4. Every year, commissioners were to be named by the Pope and the Emperor, who were to inform the latter how the dukes, the governors of the cities, and judges performed their duties. Failure in this respect was to be corrected by the Pope, or if he did not do so, the missi sent by the Emperor. 5. The whole Roman people were to be asked under which law, the Roman, the Gothic, or the Lombard, each one elected to live, and then be told that they must live up to or be judged by the law they had selected. Okay, that seems confusing. It's very confusing. That's not a good one. 
if you got arrested for one, could you be like, no, no, sorry, uh, I was following the other? It sounds like you had to sort of make a declaration beforehand and then live up to that law. You'd be a card-carrying, law-abiding Lombard or something. I'm sorry, here's my gothic law card. I am not under the Roman law. Six, the imperial commissioners were to see that the restoration to the Roman church of that portion of its property which had been usurped by the powerful. Seven, border pillaging was to be put down. Eight, when the emperor was in Rome, there had to appear before him the dukes, the judges, and other officials that he might know their number and names and admonish them as to their duty. Nine, finally, everyone who desires to obtain the favor of God and us must yield in all things obedience to the Roman pontiff. All of this looks pretty great for the Pope. It would hold the nobles in check and prevent their interference in elections, and it would protect papal and imperial legates from being attacked for being from opposing political factions. It also protected papal property from being looted, which was apparently a problem at the time, and it codified the structure for the Pope and the Emperor to communicate and administrate the temporal duties across the papal states. And it boldly declared the emperor's support of the papal state's obedience to the pope. Quite literally, these decrees were followed by an oath to be made by the Roman peoples that said, quote, I promise in the name of God Almighty by the four gospels, by this cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the body of blessed Peter, prince of the apostles, that from this day forward I will be faithful to the Lord our emperors, Louis and Lothair, all the days of my life, to the utmost of my strength and ability, without guile, saving the fidelity for which I have promised to the sovereign pontiff, that I will not consent to the election of a pontiff for this see be made otherwise than in accordance with the canons of justice, and that the elect shall not be consecrated without taking in the presence of the emperor's envoys and of the people an oath like the one which Pope Eugenius of his own accord took for the preservation of all. Sounds good! does. But you may have noticed a catch, and quite a big one. I don't think I noticed it. For these decrees to hold their weight, the Pope had to recognize the Emperor as the overlord of the Papal States, and give an oath of fealty to Luther and Louis. And, and, the Pope also agreed to imperial confirmation for newly elected Popes. The thing that the papacy has only truly just gotten out from under the Byzantine Empire, and now... Uh -huh. Now we gotta do it with the Franks. Gotta do it with the Franks. Uh. So remember when I kept going, lightning fast, look how good this is! Yeah, this is why. <laughs> so, of course, this wasn't presented as such an overt structure of confirmation the way that it had been. And historian Thomas F.X. Noble argues that Emperor Louis was not claiming the right to reject or withhold approval from a candidate in as much as it had been before. But the agreement dictated that after an election, the new pope would not be consecrated until the arrival of imperial envoys who would receive the pope's confirming oath of fealty and adherence to the alliance first. So... It's not like they're going to be like, no, you can't be Pope and we're going to hold back on this, but it's still imperial confirmation. But these are the terms that Pope Eugene agreed to, which seems to sort of impede the rising authority of the papacy, but it does defend the authority which they've already created. 
And so we're clear about the nature of this oath of fealty, by the way. Historian Walter Ullman argues emphatically that this was not meant to be taken as a clause of a subject to an overlord, but was more like an affirmation of loyalty. He points to the salva clause in the oath above, that bit where it says, saving the fidelity which I have promised to the sovereign pontiff, as a main point of evidence, because the Romans are swearing obedience to the pope before the emperor. Not sure I buy his argument, considering that all popes before Eugene were just as eager to have the Franks defending their newly acquired temporal lands. And of course, no pope would be agreeing to an oath that the Roman people would have to make if it didn't have such a clause. So to me, it looks a little bit like steps backwards. However, what we do know is that Eugene very much emphasized that whatever fealty the pope would pay the emperor, the pope and the church would remain a full undisputed and independent authority over matters of doctrine. And Lothair agreed to this. Although we've already seen, the Franks aren't great at keeping to that either. <sighs> the Franks just suck. The Franks just have different goals in mind, right? The papacy benefits them in different ways, but they're an ambitious people. But anyways, with all of that settled, for good or ill, Eugene turned his attention back to the church and those reforms that had been part of his election support. So he holds a council in Rome in 826, attended by 62 bishops, that passed 38 canons of important and apparently very necessary reforms, the nature of which give us a look at the current state of the clergy. We're not going to go through all of them, but some of these tell us what's been going on with the clergy. First off, the council expressly forbade simony. We haven't talked about simony in quite a while since Pope Pelagius's episode. I thought they stopped doing that. I thought it was already banned. It was already banned, right? It's, it's been banned for a long time. Pope Pelagius issued a condemnation of this practice. But this indicates that there's been some regression. And clerics were now holding ecclesiastical roles because of their wealth or their nobility rather than qualifications or religious education. So, yes, it is banned, but nobody's been really cracking down on it. This is further emphasized by the subsequent canons of the council, which mandate that all parishes must establish a school at their churches for education on scripture and liturgy, and also mandated that clerics must actually undertake education for the position that they're holding. And if they were found to be unqualified, they would be suspended. And it turns out a lot of clerics were suspended after this council. So we could see from this that clerical education was extremely important to Eugene. And through all the new developments of the secular administration of the church, this had really fallen by the wayside. He also forced clerics to be more focused on their ecclesiastical lives by once again banning them from wearing secular dress and more interestingly, banning them from having other occupations. So we can assume that we were once again seeing an influx of laity too casually sort of taking on a clerical role to increase his advantages, but not really living the clerical life. There's also a vague canon presented on the issues of divorce and remarriage that's not particularly telling for the moment, but it will become important as it's often cited in modern scholarship when dealing with the issues of canonical stances on marriage. So it's important that we point it out. 
This is Canon 36, which essentially says that a man cannot divorce his wife except for in cases of adultery or when they consult with a bishop in order to pursue a religious life. It makes no commentary on remarriage. This will certainly come up again when we get to the papacy of Pope Leo IV, who will build on this to make a much clearer prohibition on divorce, and more importantly, on remarriage in the near future. The other canons of the council called for like the rebuilding of churches that were destroyed in war, and specifically provided for orphans, widows, and the poor, which made him extremely popular with the people of Rome, who called him, quite directly, the father of the people. That's pretty good, right? This is, you know, we've gone from Pascal, who everybody hated, to this pope that everybody's calling the father of the people. This is good. Yes. And on a similar note, we should also add that, like Pascal, Eugene had taken a vested interest in the rebuilding, development, and beautifying of Rome, and his big project was updating his former titular church, the Santa Sabina, which he filled with new mosaics. We're going to see this become a trend. A lot of the popes are going to be like, hey, that church that I used to be responsible for, now that I'm pope, it's getting enough. Churches all over the city are going to start getting more beautiful because of this trend. Eugene also built on the evangelization efforts started by Pascal towards Scandinavia. Since Ebbo's efforts had only been minimally successful, Pope Eugene sent out a new commission for converting the Danes to Ansgar, the Saxon missionary supported by Emperor Louis. And as he will later be known as St. Ansgar, the Apostle of the North, you can gather he was more successful as time went on. We're going to come back to him later. Okay. Not in this episode, but later, later. I'll forget. You will forget. And of course, he also had to contend with the ongoing iconoclastic conflict that had reared back up in the East. Last week, we had talked about Emperor Leo V, who reinstated iconoclasm. But on Christmas Eve of 820, Emperor Leo was murdered. And murdered in the wildest imperial murder ever. Took place in a church, and he literally fought for his life, fending off attackers with a giant cross before he was hacked to pieces. Hacked to pieces. Hacked to pieces. I have the account. Mmm, more hacking. <laughs> Let me tell you about the hacking. This is the account by John Skylixes of the Emperor's Death. So, the conspirators mingled discreetly with the clerks, their daggers hidden in their cloaks, and went in with them. They then assembled in a dark corner of the church, awaiting the prearranged signal. As the hymn was being sung, the emperor, who was already there, took up the refrain, as was his custom. It was then that the conspirators struck en masse. Their first attack went awry because they mistook the master of the clerks for the emperor, perhaps because he wore a certain physical resemblance to him, or he was wearing the same kind of headgear. For it was a cold winter night, <laughs> so everybody was... <laughs> Oops, stabbed the wrong man. For it was a cold winter night, so everybody was in heavy clothing, and each man had covered his head with a tightly fitting felt hat. The master of the clerks contrived to save himself by removing his felt hat, thus revealing that he was bald. Not the emperor. When the emperor realized that he was being attacked, he went into the sanctuary and seized the divine cross, with which to ward off the blows of his attackers. But the conspirators attacked all together, not one at a time. 
He was able to resist for some time by parrying the sword thrusts with the divine cross, but then he was set upon (laughs) from all sides like a wild beast. He was already beginning to flag from his wounds when at the end he saw a gigantic person about to deal him a blow. Then with an oath he invoked the grace which had inhabited the temple and begged to be delivered. The noble was of the Crambonitai family. This is not the time for swearing oaths, but for killing, he declared. (laughs) Who says things like that? What is this, an 80s cartoon? Yes. And dealt him a blow which cut off the arm at the joint not only severing the member, but also sundering an arm of the cross. Someone also cut off his head, which was already damaged by wounds and hanging down. (laughs) His head was already messed up real bad. So this is the wildest end for an iconoclast emperor, right? Maybe if there had been more icons, he would have more things to defend himself But, as always, I want to highly recommend the Leo V episode of Chitalis Rankium. Rob and Jamie have a lot of fun with this death, so... All of this is to say that he was murdered, and succeeded by Michael too, who, while also an iconoclast, seemed a fair degree more tolerant of iconodualism in the early stages of his reign. This had given hope to influential iconoclasm opposers like Theodorus Dudides, who wrote to the new emperor and begged him to unite the church and more importantly, to consult with the Pope of Rome on these conflicting theological matters, quote, as was the tradition. The popes have never wavered in their condemnation of iconoclasm, so surely, if Michael was unsure, the Pope could set him straight. Unfortunately for them, Michael very quickly slid harder into iconoclasm and began to prosecute iconoduels very harshly, like Leo had. And we also covered this last week, but he also turned to Louis over in the West, because as we've seen with the Libri Carolini, the Franks have been a little bit more hesitant on icon veneration, even if it was due to that bad translation of the canons of the Second Council of Nicaea. If Michael could gain support from the Western emperor for his iconoclast policies, perhaps together they could pressure the West into relenting. When Emperor Louis receives the contact from Michael over allying on the iconoclasm issue, Louis isn't quite sure what sentiment he wants to convey on the issue. And he writes to the Pope for his blessing to hold the Council of Frankish Bishops to evaluate and clarify the Orthodox position against iconoclasm. Eugene grants permission, and a council was held in Paris in 826. But the same thing happened that had happened last time that the Frankish theologians had gotten together to deal with iconoclasm. They decided to hold their own council because they are Frenchmen. I am a Frenchman, I have my council, but you know, it's even more similar than that because they once again took out the canons of the Second Council of Nicaea, the bad translations that nobody threw out. Ah. Oh. And got themselves all confused on the issue once again. The conclusions that they send back to the Pope are a mess. So nothing is forwarded to the East from them. The council amounts to absolutely nothing. And Louis doesn't have a good answer for Michael. So, you know, if they're not absolutely sure 100% that they're all on the same side, that icon veneration is okay, the Pope's not sending that on to Emperor Michael. 
But unfortunately, this is all that Eugene gets to be involved with, because he dies on August 27th of 827 of natural causes. Wendy J. Reardon says that he was buried in St. Peter's, tomb destroyed for new St. Peter's, standard fare. But other historians claim that there's no record of his burial at all. So we can't be entirely sure. Stands to reason that we could assume that St. Peter's destroyed for new St. Peter's. Destroyed. The usual. So that is Pope Eugene. And it's time to rate him. Papatum and Phallium. We need to start with, of course, the Constitutio Romana. This is important. The good. It preserves the independence of the papal election. It restricted the power of the nobles in papal elections by enforcing the restrictions on election participation as it had been laid out in the Lateran Council of 769. And this is important for us to remember, and I'm really going to harp on this, because in our upcoming sources on the next few popes, there are claims being made that the Constitutio did the exact opposite and officially requires nobles to participate in elections. But this is not true, and I have checked with the experts who are currently working on exactly this. Good. Independence of papal election. Really, really good. The bad. You know? Imperial confirmation. They have relied this far on the Franks to establish and defend the papal states, and now they're back with the emperor having tacit approval of who is pope. One article I read summarized the Constitutio as having, quote, conceded the immediate temporal power of the pope in Rome, but affirmed the imperial overlordship. And that says it all. Consider that for the Constitutio. Other than that, we have the Council in Rome, which was very much geared to reforming the church and creating better discipline. So this is pretty much all good. Simony, expressly forbidden. Concerned with clerics being properly educated for their role, and that the people of Rome have the ability to be educated in liturgy and doctrine. He's creating an informed and capable clergy. This is good. And more importantly, he stresses that it's the duty of the Pope to make and enact these reforms, reasserting the role that the Pope should have right all the way down to basic discipline and knowledge of the clergy. So that's good. How do you feel about it? I'm going to lean towards like a six or a seven. If it weren't for imperial confirmation, I'd probably be looking at an eight. Like this would be big. But I think, I think you're right. It's kind of in that range. He's, he's making a good and capable church. He's defending the church. These are all great. So it is kind of... Well, let's go with a six. Yeah, it's a six. So that will give him a 12 in Papatum and Valium. Fructus Prohibitum. Well, I didn't mention it, but he may have had a son or a male lover. Those are two different things. Yeah, they are, but they get wrapped up very much into the same thing. And we're going to talk about it a lot more next week because the fact that it never comes up in the sources about him directly solidly indicates that it's not true. But it is suggested. <laughs> Do you want to give that a point or not? I don't want to give that a point. I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to think about the implications of he has a son and a gay lover. And then, like, 
the gay lover his son. There is a figure that we will talk about, and people are like, it was his son! That is scandalous. And there are other people like, no, it's scandalous because it wasn't his son, it was his lover. So we're not sure which one. You don't want to give it any points. I'm going to give it a one just because it exists. At some point, this rumor went around. I'm going to just scrub it from my mind. I I will allow you to do that, and I will move on. (laughs) Seculari impactum. His reforms from the Council of 826 provided education for many and also provided support for orphans, widows, children, and the poor. He's extremely popular with the lay people of Rome, who call him the father of the people. He recalled various nobles and restored their holdings, which made him very popular. They keep getting kicked out, though. Like, every other pope, it's like, oh, no, you can come back. No, leave again. This is something that we gave Pascal a lot of negative consideration for. Maybe we'll give Eugene positive consideration for trying to make that better. Yeah, and that in the poor, I get maybe a four. I'm not feeling it like he's doing an amazing job. He's doing the bare minimum. Okay, you can give him a four. I'll also point out that he obviously kept a good relationship with the Franks, so that's to be considered too. I'm tired of them. They should go. Uh, soon. Surprisingly soon. I think, yeah, I mean, it's kind of in that range. I'm going to give him a five. He regained all this popularity during a time where, after Pascal, it would have been very, very easy to distrust the Pope. He manages to keep the nobles out of the election without alienating them. They still like him. And he's also called the father of the people. So he'll get a nine in Secular Eye Impactum. Yeah, Pascal did suck. <laughs> you really don't like him. No. Fossium Sanctus. So now it's time to look at this man's face. Here is the image that we're going to rate him on. This is, he looks like he got punched in both eyeballs. They are some very dark eyeballs. I mean, my thought when I look at that is that's how I feel right now because I haven't slept. Look how tired. I know, that's me. That's me. I've slept like maybe four hours in the last over two weeks and it's not great. So I feel this image. So... Um, look, I feel like having to deal with all of Pas- everything Pascal gave him would make me this tired looking. So are you sympathetic to that level of tired I am, looking to score I am him well? I sympathetic to this level of tired looking. Okay, so what will you score him in your sympathy for his sleepiness? Six for that and seven because he's got one of those lovely Roman noses. You do love a Roman nose, don't you? It look is a good it. nose. You know what? Actually, all of his features are pretty good. If you look at it, he's got like a a pretty defined brow bone. His cheekbones are definitely there. They are looking sharp. So yeah, no, it's pretty good. I'm going to give him a five. I don't feel as good about it as you because you're our Roman nose lover. But that gives him a 12. And when we divide that out, that's a three. So it's pretty good. But I have other images for you. These ones, there seems to be a level of consistency where he was clearly a a chubby brunette sort of man who was hefty in a side profile. So here's the bad artist. It's not too bad. It reminds me a little bit of a side profile of Bobby Hill. (laughs) That's my purse. (laughs) I don't know you. This one 
very much gives the same opinion. This is from that Pope a Day blog that we found. A little uh, bit sharper nose, a little bit more contoured figures, wearing a fancy jacket. And then I have this one, and this one is a little different. Have you ever seen trolleyed or plebs or... Watch that one episode of Plebs, and then I didn't watch any more. There's an actor who appears in a lot of, like, small British shows like that, uh-huh. and his... And I had to look it up because this this gave me very strong vibes. He plays Neville in Trolley. His name is Dominic Coleman. And this dude looks very much like this image of this Pope. Oh, yes. Okay. I have seen this man. What have I seen this man in? Because he's been in so many. Anything that's like Brit. He was in Up the Women. He was at least in one episode of Plebs. He's in like every episode of Trolley. So much more than that. I can't even... He shows up all the time and I go, ah, it's Neville. So... <laughs> well, I haven't... Like, I haven't seen Trolley, so, like, what did I watch him in? Whatever little British show you watched Some is probably... British there. show. All the yeah. British shows. He's everywhere. So it definitely looks like him. So if we need a casting call for this Pope, it's definitely going to be Dominic Coleman. Tempest? Pontificus. So June 4th, 824 to August 27th, 827. Three years and a score of 0.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. He is not a saint, which is, again, really surprising if you look at Pascal, who gets to be a saint and was terrible, but Eugene, who did really well, just gets no attention, so... That brings us to our final score for him, which is a fairly round and meaty 25.75. Not bad. Not bad. It puts him in 37th place out of a hundred and, well, 99 popes at current. So that's not bad at all. But now, I must ask you, Fry, if you think he's papally enough, pizzazzy enough, with an impact enough for a papal bow? No. Nah. It's not there. I would like to give it to him. And I'm surprised you don't want to give it to him just out of spite for Pascal. I'm I'm not feeling that spiteful. It's just not how it goes. So that just is not going to work out for him. So that brings us to the end of our episodes where we have thank yous to make. And again, again, I will always, I need to thank Dr. Rucker Kramer and his colleague for the clarification on the Constitutio's stance on the election process, because I spent hours and hours reading completely opposite things about this damn document, and they set me on the right path. So thank you very much for that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com, and we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com dot com slash pontifax wishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifax podcast if you'd like to support us in other ways rating and reviewing the show on itunes makes a world of difference and with that we can say thank you and goodbye bye